Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Okie dokie. All right, everybody. Good day. Good day. We are in Genesis chapter 37. We, uh, we started last week, we were with chapter 36 and then a little bit into 37, hoping to finish the chapter, but we never made it. Um, but we, we did do the first eight verses. And so if you're not familiar with Genesis 37, you weren't here with us. Uh, Genesis 37 introduces us to uh, a hero of the Bible, one of the few men where uh, nothing is said negatively necessarily about him the the worst thing i think you might be able to say about him is when he was young he seems like perhaps he may have been a tattletale um or something like that but even that could be kind of uh discussed as to if that's a bad thing um because his job was to inform his dad what was going on and so he did um and so uh and maybe he didn't have some uh tact as far as revealing some of his dreams or whatever to his brother. So anyway, we're, we're looking at Joseph. Uh, Joseph will be sort of the central figure from chapter 37, th- basically to the end of the book of Genesis, um, a significant figure certainly in the scripture and, and a great guy to, for us to look at and, and hopefully pattern our lives after. Uh, the first eight verses of uh, chapter 37 reveals to us that Joseph um, had a dream and Well, let's just read those eight verses. Starting in verse 2, it says, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing his flock, the flock, with his brothers. He was born with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph uh, brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he had uh, this son in his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Let me just quickly remind you of a couple things um, in there. Uh, If you look at verse 2 where it says, these are the generations of Joseph, of Jacob, compare that to chapter 36, verse 1, where it says, these are the generations of Esau. Uh, And then chapter 36 goes on to give us a genealogy, whereas chapter 37 just jumps in and starts talking about Joseph. It almost appears like verses are missing or something like that. But recall that that word generations can mean both genealogy and the history and the story. And so that's what we're getting in chapter 37 is the history of the, of the family of Jacob. And in particular, we're going to look at Joseph. Now remember, Jacob has uh, ultimately will have 12 sons. Um, Joseph is his 11th son. And then it seems there's a bit of a break between Joseph and then his younger brother, a man by the name of Benjamin, or a boy by the name of Benjamin. Um, it's pretty figured out, if you do the math, that Joseph was, or excuse me, Jacob was 91 years old when Joseph was born. I believe jo- Jacob's firstborn was somewhere around 65 years old. So there's a big difference of almost 25 or so years mm-hmm. between some of Jacob's uh, older sons and his younger son, in this case, uh, Joseph. Also, Joseph is the son of Rachel. Um, and so you may recall that when Jacob went to that foreign land to find a wife of his parents, his mom's people, mother's people, uh, that uh, he really wanted to marry this girl, Rachel, and there was a little switcheroo um, 
that evening of the uh, the wedding, the veil, dark and all that, he wakes up the next morning and um, he had actually ended up marrying the older sister. Um, so there's Leah and four children, four boys uh, are born of her. Uh, then she stops bearing and so she gives a concubine, two more are born that way, then um, Rachel gets into the picture and I may have the order switched around, but she, two uh, more boys are born that way, and then finally Rachel conceives. Um, and so uh, Joseph was this favored son. You'll see there in verse uh, three, where it says he made him a robe of many colors. Um, it can actually be worded not just of many colors, but a robe with long sleeves. Um, and either way, this coat was special and it was unique. The idea of the long sleeves would be that it, it extends down to the wrist, it extends down past the knees, and it would be the coat that was worn by sort of like a professional. So Joseph moved from the fields to uh, the front office, if you will, and is um, in a managerial position. And, and so that caused some bitterness, needless to say, um, with the other brothers. And they're like, why does this young kid get to go there while we're here? And he, well, he's dad's favorite uh, and all those types of things. Okay, so that's some stuff we quickly talked about. We could spend more time if you need to, but you can go back and listen if you'd like. Now, verse 5 through 8. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold my sheaf arose and stood upright and behold your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf his brother said to him are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us uh, so they hated him even more uh, for his dreams and for his words and and so this is one of those things where perhaps joseph this perhaps is a character flaw in that it's not like you know what do you think that could mean he knows what it means and is enjoying around the dinner table telling everyone his dream and his brothers already dislike him and now even more so because he thinks he he's going to be something little do they know that that's exactly what's going to happen uh, but nonetheless he has that first dream okay that brings us to where we left off verse 9 then he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers and said behold i have dreamed another dream behold the sun the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Does that sound like a New Testament statement? Which one? Mary. Mary, right? You know, where she just sort of files these things away. Um, so similarly so the father does call him out on this one and the reason why he knows he's referenced in this one he sees himself as the sun he sees the wife the mother as the moon and then the 11 stars would be the brothers uh, that are there is 11 or 10 11 stars so uh, this time he says all right son you're going a little too far here it's one thing for your brothers to serve you it's another thing for mom and I uh, to serve you as well uh, and so he confronts him on that. Um, I have my suspicions that, again, that he's not telling him this because he is really confused about what it could all mean. Um, I think the Lord is kind of impressing something on his heart. He knows this is 
this is a more important dream, if you will. There's something of substance to this dream as opposed to just, you know, I eat too much pepperoni pizza, kind of. And there's something to it. He, he can feel that. Um, perhaps part of him likes what is being displayed there. Everyone bowed down to me uh, or whatever. But he, uh, he shares this dream. Um, the dream is true, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was wise for him to share it with his brothers around the dinner table. Um, you know, sometimes wisdom says, you know, just keep that one to yourself and just kind of hold on to that and file it away. Um, so anyway, his father rebukes him. Um, now he says, shall I and your mother come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Um, now there, this does, this raises an issue for us because Benjamin is alive here. And when did Benjamin, what happened when Benjamin was born? That's his younger brother, Rachel by the way. Rachel. Benjamin's mom dies, right? Rachel. Uh, and so, um, well, wait a minute, because that's going to be, that is what? Uh, how many chapters earlier? Or where was that exactly? Chapter 35 somewhere around verse 20 or so, uh, verse 18, as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. So, what's going on there? Nobody? Well, in this case, the moon's probably a reference to Lee. You think it's a reference to Leah. Now, why would he say, though, shall I and your mother? That's not his mother. Okay. <laughs> Something to think about. Oh, okay. Uh -huh, you're good. I love it. Could it be this idea of... Uh, not... Not a literal her bowing down, Jacob bowing down, but the sense of he will kind of rise beyond where they go in life, if that makes sense. Like they're going to reach kind of this place in life. Or his grandparents, he's not even alive when they are at this place, but he's going to be at this place leading the nation. Could it be something like that? Sure, it could. Yeah. We've seen a number of examples in the book of Genesis, even in the last few chapters, of where everything doesn't necessarily go in chronological order. And so kind of this story is kind of shared. And you know what? Let's let's just throw in the birth of Benjamin now too. And by the way, when Ben was born, his mom died. All right, so we dealt with all the births. Now let's tell, let me tell you about the dreams. And so it's not necessarily in chronological order. And so we've seen examples of that, and this could be another one of those examples. So I wouldn't get all worried and think about leaving the faith over this issue. It's not that significant of an issue, uh, and there certainly is a solution uh, to it, and I proposed a few to, for you. He's somewhat prophetic, too. Uh, how so prophetic? Well, when, when Joseph is ruling, or almost ruling Egypt, when their family came by, they kind of... Yeah, it, it, I think it is that. Yeah. Yeah. But who's the mother? Okay, all right, all right, good. Now, he references the sun, the moon, and the stars. Let's flip in our Bibles, and it's an easy one to flip to. Revelation 
chapter 12. That's the last book in the Bible. So it's right before your notes or concordance, whatever you got there. Chapter 12. So you may recall a little while back on a Sunday morning I mentioned this idea of uh, stock imagery that we will oftentimes see in parables or in prophecies and things like that. And so there's sort of this technique of interpretation that uh, if we have an eye, if we've been told that this symbolizes that in the past, that that should sort of be our default in looking at it in the future. Um, doesn't always have to be that necessarily, but you should kind of begin at that particular place. And so in Revelation chapter 12, I think we have an example of this. Verse 1 says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And then it goes in and it talks about how this serpent comes against her. Well, the serpent represents whom in Scripture? Satan. Satan, right? That's an easy one, pretty much so. Uh, And who is it that the serpent is going to come against in chapter 12? Israel. The nation of Israel. I believe it's Israel. I totally think it's Israel. But there are people who... I know they do. I know those people. I don't. I know of them. You've heard of them. No, but there are people. And so I think this would be a good example of seeing something that was kind of defined for us, or maybe it's defined better here, that we could apply back there. But Jacob applies it back there to him, his wife, the 12 tribes, 11 tribes, uh, in addition to Joseph. And so I think it can carry over here to Revelation 12 that this, what we're looking at here in chapter 12 is... uh, a reference to is the nation of Israel. Okay? All right. Any questions on that? It's kind of fun to think, right? Well, I mean, good. If someone has a differing view on that, um, a good thing to, like, some people say it's the church. Yeah. The problem with that is she's pregnant, and the church is always presented as a virgin. So. Huh, that's very good. Something for them to chew on. Thank you, uh, Baron. Chuck Missler. Chuck. I haven't heard him lately. All right, let's go on. Verse 12, and we'll read a little bit. This is back in Genesis. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Uh Uh-oh. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? He said, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went up after his brothers, and he found them at Dothan. Now, in verse 2 of this chapter, Joseph is out pasturing the flock with his brothers. You see that there? Now they're out pasturing the flock, and he's back at the office or whatever. And so there likely is a correlation between him getting that coat and him not being out there uh, anymore uh, with them. And so he gets, goes on his way. He has a rough idea of where they are. Um, my wife and I, we have a Find Me app for my son Jacob um, because now he drives, and, and so we just follow his phone, you know. And so... They he, they didn't have one of those there. Uh, <laughs> find me at, and so it's not unusual to kind of wander a bit. And um, when 
I know some of us in this room are going to Israel, can't we? And when you go, what you'll see is a lot of these open fields you could see forever, you know, and it's just sort of this, and sometimes you can't see down here, but it comes back up there, and you can see again, and, and you can see a long distance. So, you know, if he gets himself out to a certain area, he can kind of glance left or right, okay, there they are, and head out in that direction. And so that's what he's doing. He's wandering around for them. Um, it does seem surprising that they would choose Shechem to go and pasture their flock, right? Why? Anybody remember Shechem? Chapter 34, the little history there. You can yeah, just look at the, uh, where the uh, sister got, got defiled and then then they took revenge against the whole city and put all the men to the sword. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe it is a good place to go because there's no men to come out and get them. I don't know. Uh, but it's kind of surprising to me that they chose to go to Shechem. But you're right. That's the account there. All right, let's continue. Verse 18. So they saw him from afar. Oh, they saw him. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him. So, you know, they got 20 minutes, 30 minutes, uh, half hour or whatever. That's the same as 30 minutes. Um, and uh, they conspire against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now. Oh, my gosh. Let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Could you imagine? I, I mean... I can't imagine. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. How about that? That's their brother. All right. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Now remember, Reuben is the firstborn son, so he takes a little bit of leadership here. He's not always been a guy to show leadership, but he takes a little leadership. And he says, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And then notice, you know, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So maybe he's... I don't think it was leadership. I think he was scheming for his own. What do you think he's scheming? He's trying to win back favor with his father. Okay. What do you think, John? Okay. I mean, real leadership would say, no, we're not doing this. You know, I don't like the guy either, but he's our brother or whatever. So you're right. It's not real leadership, and perhaps there's an intention that is in there. But he says, we're not going to kill him. He doesn't take a stand completely, and so he doesn't want to offend the other brothers, all the ten other brothers, but he also doesn't want to kill his brother and hurt his father. And so he's, he's just trying to, like, tiptoe and play both sides. And that's going to be trouble. Verse 33, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of that robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. So I think the implication is that it hurt a little bit. Um, could it be that his fancy long flowing coat gave him away? Because even if you can see someone for 30 minutes away or whatever they are, um, you probably can't take out the, make out their face. We do see some examples where someone's coming a long distance and it's like someone's running and he runs like Kevin Tallickson, you know, so, you know, <laughs> flopping arms. And, I don't know how Kevin runs. <laughs> but, you know, he runs in a distinct way or, or something like that. But a, a guy walking, a face is not going to... So could it be that this long flowing coat out there in the middle of the fields, that gave him away? Um but they come up with a plan pretty quickly. 
you know, even 30 minutes to come up with a foolproof plan to murder someone and get away with it and not get caught. It seems to me like they'd been thinking this through or laying in bed at night. I mean, if I could kill that kid, I would. And here's how I would do it, you know, or whatever. So they're coming up with a plan. And, you know, it is never good to entertain plots of evil. I'm sure you know that. Um, now, I don't know if any of us here are planning to murder people. Um, but that certainly that's not good. If you are, stop it. Um, <laughs> but even like certainly lesser degrees of that, of how I would get them, even if you have no intention of doing so, is not good for our hearts uh, to do so. Um, Proverbs 14 says, do they not go astray who devise evil? Uh, and so stop devising evil. It says this in Micah chapter 2, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in their power to do it. You know, this idea of uh, devising evil on their bed, woe to them. So, Reuben, firstborn son via wife Leah. Uh, he has pool amongst the rest of them. Um, sadly, he doesn't use his influence to do more. Um, but he, he comes up with this plan that both sides would be uh, satisfied. Nobody would really be angry with him necessarily. Um, I, it seems to me he's a guy who wants everyone to like him. And usually people that want everybody to like him aren't really liked by anybody um, because they just make compromises and things like that and people can see right through it. Some of our presidential candidates uh, were like that, are like that. Um, and he comes up with this foolproof plan that wasn't foolproof. Uh, Galatians 6 says, uh, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of faith. He had an opportunity to do good in that moment, and he let it pass, and the opportunity was gone. Uh, and so we need to take advantage of the opportunities the Lord gives us to do well. Would you agree? Yeah. yeah. All right, let's go on to verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. Can you believe it? They just tossed their brother into a pit. At least they didn't murder him, I guess. And so now they're having a nice meal. Um, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum. How about that? Balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell our brother to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he's our brother, our own flesh. It's okay to sell him into slavery, but we shouldn't murder him. He's our brother. And the rest of the brothers listened to him. Yeah. Well, then Midianite trainers, traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. So they just brutalized their brother, tossed him into a well, left them for dead, and they sit down to have a meal. And again, how heartless. You know, you hear stories of, you know, lunacy that happens in our nation or things like that where someone just committed some horrific crime and then they sit down in the house and have a meal, you know, um, while the person is dying. Um, this is what it says in Genesis 42. I think it bears some interesting light on what's going on here. 42 verse 21 is when these guys have been exposed. So we're skipping up 20 years or whatever, many years into the future. 
Um, Joseph is now reigning in Egypt. The brothers come down there. He tells them who he is. And it says this in 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. You know, so, I mean, I think we could all imagine how Joseph was feeling, but those words there, when he begged us, I mean, you can just picture him saying, you know, I'm sorry, I, I promise I won't do this again, and, you know, don't do this. I imagine initially is like, I'm telling dad, and then that quickly changed to, I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again, and please, and, um, and so on and so forth. And so uh, here, these guys, they hardened their hearts to his cries. Um, even here, they admit they heard the cries, but they hardened their hearts to him. Judah, it says, uh, says, let's sell him. Now, verse 29 of chapter 37, just skipping up a little, verse 29 mm-hmm. says, When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. So he was not there at the time that this sale is taking place. And, you know, he had this, again, he had this grand plan where he would do good sometime in the future. And now the opportunity to do good was, um, missed it. he missed it. And so, as again, as it says in Galatians, when you have opportunity, take advantage of it. Um, Reuben's not there. Judah takes charge, finds out a way he can make some money. They sell him for uh, 20 seconds of silver, silver, I mean, which was the minimum you could sell us and buy a slave for. And so, just just give us bare minimum, you know what I mean? Just take them off our hands kind of thing. Um, a lot of respect for their brother, and they take him to Egypt. And Joseph, no doubt, has zero idea what's going on here. You know, he's been having these dreams, sensing that something was different about these dreams than just the average run-of-the-mill dream, sensing that God was doing something and was going to do something with his life. Uh, and now his brothers beat him, throw him in a pit where he had time to think, no doubt, and then... Um, he gets sold off into slavery, has no idea that God's at work, doesn't feel like God is at work in this, and yet it's because of this that the messianic line is preserved because of what's going on here. So God is totally in this, um, and he's going to use these circumstances to save the Jewish people and ultimately to save you and I eternally because of the work of Christ. Also, I think God is at work because God's going to refine Joseph a little bit. And he's going to use these years to develop Joseph into the godly leader that he will need to be to do the work that God has him to do. And so these years are going to be very important years in his life to prepare him. Okay? Let's go on to verse 29. Now when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes he returned to his brothers, and he said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? How can I return to my dad? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat. Now, I don't know if there's a little gap there. And they said, Well, we've got to come up with a plan to tell, or, or whatever, or if it's happening while he's, you know, woe is meing. But anyway, they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors, and they brought it to their father. 
And they said, this is this we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And Jacob identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins, and he mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. Notice daughters. As far as we knew in the past, it was Tamar, but now they're not Tamar. Um, Dinah. Uh, so we know there's more than one. But he refused to be comforted. He said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt again to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. All right. Well, Reuben, in verse 29, tears his clothes, um, which is like a sign of uh, mourning and regret. Um, you'll hear putting on sackcloth, which is like a... And ashes. And ashes also, yep. Uh, and so Reuben now, that weak stand that he that he had to do the right thing before it accomplished nothing, he might as well have taken no stand. Um, they dip the robe in blood. They again they come up with a plan to deceive their father. Um, now notice uh, their little plan was that a fierce animal had devoured him, but they never told their dad that that was the case. They just simply brought the bloody garment, and the dad said. Surely a fierce animal has killed him. And they're just nodding along there. So, did they actually lie? Yeah. yeah. They didn't tell the truth. Well, he never asked them. Did you guys kill him or sell him? They, they let him assume. Uh, deceive, deception, yeah. lie, lie, there. <laughs> all a lie. All right. Well, they set out to I deceive. what I wanted you to hear. Yeah. Is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> they were more than happy not to say anything. Yeah. What what the key is is that they set out to deceive. Whether they and he was deceived. So whether they actually said anything or not. It may work in a court of law, but not before God. So Sin don't do it. No, Sin of omission. Yeah. In not telling. Yeah. So Jacob tears his clothes, he undergoes mourning as well. And as we saw in that last verse, the Midianites sell him Again, this time to Potiphar. Um, Joseph life, Joseph's life is just falling apart, right? Everything was going great. No, it's not falling apart. It's falling into place. It's exactly where God has him. God's great plan. I, re- I found this. I thought it was pretty good. I'll, I'll read it to you, okay? If Joseph's brothers never sell him to the Midianites, then Joseph never goes to Egypt. If Joseph never goes to Egypt, he's never sold to Potiphar. If he's never sold to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife never falsely accuses him of rape. If Potiphar's wife never falsely accuses him, then he's never put in prison. If he's never put in prison, he never meets the baker and the butler. If he never meets the baker and the butler, he never interprets their dreams. If he never interprets their dreams, he never gets to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. If he never gets to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, he's never made prime minister. If he's never made prime minister, he never wisely administrates for the severe famine coming upon the region. If he never wisely administrates for the severe famine, then his family back in Canaan perishes from the famine. If his family back in Canaan perishes from the famine, the Messiah can't come forth from a dead family. If the Messiah can't come forth, then Jesus never came. And if Jesus never came, then you are dead in your sins and without hope in this world. 
puts into perspective a little bit the suffering that he's undergoing. And, and what I'm hopeful is, and I, I shared a book with you last week that I really enjoyed when I was young in the faith, and it was called God Meant It for Good. And it's based on Joseph's words toward the end of the book of Genesis. And um, it essentially the whole argument of the book is that everything that Joseph went through, everything that we go through, that God can accomplish good from it, as it says in the book of Romans. And to see things, if you will, with new eyes as to where God might be taking us, what God might, wanting to be do, might want to be doing, uh, and so on. It's, it's a wonderful little book. Um, so you might want to pick it up. I don't even know if it's in, it was the most popular book in the world, but I liked it. It meant a lot to me. Probably on Amazon. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I have it in the corner there, and it's like got like a sort of like a multicolored cover, like the coat of many colors, and it's groovy. Yeah. It's probably from them. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Okay, so that is chapter thirty-seven. Do you want to jump into thirty-eight? Yes. All right. Chapter 38 is sort of like, remember I said Joseph becomes the key? Well, Joseph's the key in 37, he's the key in 39, and then in 38 you have this story that is kind of thrown in there. And it's like, why is that put in right there? It should be somewhere else or or whatever. So uh, chapter 38 is the story of Judah and Tamar, or the account of Judah and his daughter-in-law, a woman by the name of Tamar. It is a sordid chapter. Um, If you have any doubt that the Word of God is the accurate account of the events that occurred, then you look at a chapter like this because Judah is this significant person in the Scripture, and he's painted in this chapter as a pretty slimy fellow. Um, And so uh, the Bible's honest about its heroes and the people that are in it. And so let's take a look at it. The first five verses. Now it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and he turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and he went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan and she bore a son again and she called his name Shelah. And Judah was in Kezeb when she bore him. And so uh, this first verse here, uh, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. So remember, he's one of those 12 Joseph is sold. Um, He breaks away from them. Does that have something to do with it was his call to sell his brother into slavery or or what? Who knows? Um, It doesn't necessarily mean this happened after that event. But he takes off from the rest of his brothers. He hooks up with a fellow by the name of a or a guy from a that's an Adulamite whose name was Hiram. Um, the word Hiram means, or some versions, by the way, say Hira with an H at the end. Mm-hmm. It means a noble family. Um, and so kind of a key family in that area. He hooks up with them. Uh, and you begin to see that the children of Israel, they begin now to, to settle away from Jacob in the land of Canaan um, and make life with the neighboring people. And it's not typically a good thing when that is occurring. Um, and Adulamite is a person from Adullam, which is, was a royal city of the Canaanites. It's uh, not too far from Bethlehem, uh, Jerusalem. They're, neither of those are towns yet. 
But just to put it in perspective, if you know where Jerusalem is, Bethlehem is about seven miles from that. Uh, and just over this little mountain range is what's called the Valley of Elah. That's where David and Goliath. So you remember David was from Bethlehem and his dad sent him with a lunch to his brothers. That was in the Valley of Elah. And so we're in that little area there. Um, Adullam was a royal city in the Valley of Elah. And so that's where um, he is now with his new friend. Uh, and it says, There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Uh, Shua means wealth, by the way. Um, and so the problem here is he sees a girl, no offense, and makes his decision that he wants to marry her. And that's the wrong way to make a decision about who you're going to marry, uh, is how she looks or how he looks or look at all the money so-and-so has or this or that. Uh, Kev, Paul, well, actually, we've got a bunch of people here. Those of you that are not married, take that into account. There you go. Choose wisely. Um, 27 years. I hear you. Now, we know the name Judah. I said this, you know, before that a name like Reuben, like, don't really know. Simeon, you know, don't really know, don't really recall. Levi stands out. Judah stands out. Joseph stands out. But a lot of the tribes of Israel, I would dare to venture, most of us couldn't name all 12 of them um, here. Probably working together, we could. But most of us would probably put Judah on our list. He's a name that stands out. Jesus is from the lion, as the lion of the tribe of Judah and all of that. And so he's kind of like painted as this great guy. And yet we see examples here uh, that he's anything but a great guy. Um, remember Judah, just a couple of verses earlier, chapter earlier, he's the one who said, let's sell our brother. Um, and so not the greatest of guys. He goes, he finds this lady. Apparently she's attractive or she's wealthy or whatever. Um, she's a Canaanite. Remember, we see examples of his dad going 500 miles away to find a wife so as to not marry a Canaanite. Mm -hmm. And yet he goes off and finds one, first one he sees, mm -hmm. apparently. Um, and the children of Israel, we can take this from our studies in the past, they're rapidly being corrupted in the land. And so let me just give you some examples. Dinah was, remember, a young girl out in the city of Shechem. Um, and the... The wording that we shared was seeing, if you were, how close she can get to that city and observe it and kind of take it in, and but not actually be in it. But she was close enough where she was swept into it and, and raped, unfortunately. Simeon and Levi tricking and then killing an entire city of men. Now, I don't know how big the city was, but if we transfer it over to our culture, you just take a town like Ewing, and there's probably about 17,000 men in this town. You know, and killing an entire city of people. That's crazy. Reuben, in chapter 35, laying with his father's concubine. Uh, the ten, last chapter, beating and selling their brother into slavery. Um, and leaving him for dead. I mean, this is, a, this is supposed to be, you know, the, the chosen people of God, the patriarchs, and it's a mess. Uh, and so... In chapter 42, we learn that God's going to have to move the Jewish people out of the land so that he can take the people of Canaan, deal with them, and move them out of the land. 
Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to read this to you. Uh, you can look at everyone. It's in verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, so this is way back when, remember, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Okay, now listen to these words. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. All right, so they're taken out of the land, the promised land of Canaan. God's going to deal with the iniquity of the Amorites, but it wasn't yet complete. He wasn't just jumping willy-nilly at it. When finally their iniquity rose to such a level, then they were dealt with. They're removed from the land in judgment, and the children of Israel will move back in. All right, but you just see the influences of the world of the Canaanites on the family of uh, Jacob there, and it's not good. All right, so with this daughter of Shua, three sons are born. The first is Ur, his name means awake, firstborn son of Judah. Verse 4, the second son is a guy by the name of Onan, uh, his name means strong. That's the secondborn son. Uh, and then the third one is Shelah. Now he's born when Judah is away. Um, and it says that he is in Kezeb. Um, anybody have a different word there for that? Kezeb is also known as Achziv, A-C-H-Z-I-V. Verse 5. So it says Judah was in... Uh, yeah. Chazib is what my version says. And then Achziv, A-C-H-Z-I-V. Uh, it's... It's an area in northern Israel today. It's not too far from Tel Aviv. It's heading up toward Lebanon today. Um, so he's way, way up there in the north. Uh, you know, initially he was way, Valley of Elah, sort of in the middle, closer to the south, more into the south of Israel. He's away on business or something. I don't know why that information is given to us. I suspect it's important. Um, so if you want to dig and find that out, we'd love to have you. Uh, have it from you. But anyway, he, a third child is born. His name is Sheila. Uh, his name means a petition. So you can do whatever you want with that. Verse 6, now Judah took a, a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. Verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. How about that? Yeah. Unusual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Verse 6. In verse 6, we're introduced to Tamar. Now, Tamar is the wife of Ur, Judah's firstborn. Um, and as we saw, Ur, her husband, was struck dead by God because he was wicked. Now, it's interesting because we've seen some wicked people and some wicked things, and yet far as I can tell, besides Noah and that day, 
he's the first guy like struck down by God for that wickedness. So I don't know what he was doing, but it was pretty significant. Uh, and so he is struck down for his wickedness. Now, verse 8, a little bit different for us. Then Judah said to Onan, the second-born son, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, that's not the duty of our present-day brother-in-laws. Um, it was in this particular instance here, and so it may look a little peculiar to us, but the practice was that if a man died before having any sons, it was the duty of his one of his brothers to marry her, take her as a wife, and not necessarily marry her, and give her a son, con- conceive a son for her. And any child then that was um, conceived between the two of them would inherit and kind of take on the family line of the older brother. Uh, and so that's what Judah is suggesting here. You'll notice in verse 9, it, Onan, he said it, it says Onan didn't want to do it because he knew that the heir would not be his. And so he's essentially here like, well, I'm not, I got my own life to live and I want to have my own kids and raise up my own um, inheritance and so on. I'm not giving it to somebody else's kid. And so um, he doesn't do it. A second reason. So that was a cultural thing? It was. Because the law hasn't been given yet. Correct. Okay. Yep. It's actually referred to in Deuteronomy 25 and talks about Ruth. Yeah. That whole process. In Deuteronomy 25, it talks about Ruth? Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10 talks about that custom and then um, also talks about seeing the introduction to Ruth because Ruth goes to Boaz as her kinsman redeemer. Okay. All right, so that's not talked about in Deuteronomy. No. There's a connection to that. One of the that. references is Deuteronomy 25, 5, 10, which I talks see. about that custom. So it is. It is. So what what do you think is the so why not let the lady just remain a widow or whatever? Okay. So part of the reason then is to raise up a child, a son in particular, who will then be able to care for mom when she gets older. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's mm-hmm. exactly correct. And then the other reason you do this is to carry on the family line of the man who died. Okay, so those are the two things, um, you know, and in the culture they have Social Security or whatever it may be. Do you know before Social Security that the poorest Americans were um, elderly widows in America um, in the 19 whatever that started, 1930 or something like that? Isn't that interesting? Even into this last century. Uh, but anyway, so this was designed, it was a way to kind of care for um, the woman in that regard. As uh, Suzanne pointed out, Deuteronomy 25 will later codify this practice. Uh, I found this interesting. This is one of 34 laws that is given in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Remember, Leviticus is the giving of the law. The De- Deuteronomy, it means the second law. Um, so it's a reiteration of them. Um, one of 34 practices found in Genesis that become codified later on. Um, I thought that was interesting. Uh, You remember in the New Testament when some guys come and I guess it's the Sadducees, they come and they're giving Jesus a hard time and they say that, 
you know, this guy married that lady, and then he died, and then the brother, and then the brother, and the brother. So whose husband will she be, you know, um, or vice versa, whose wife? And he says, you guys are silly, or whatever. But they're referencing this. Now, they're making fun of it, but nonetheless, they're referencing um, this uh, practice here. So Onan, dad says, look, this is what you need to do. I get in there. Onan says, okay, yeah, sure. He goes in there, but as we see, he purposefully um, causes it so that the wife, or his uh, brother's wife, will not conceive. Um, and so you see a guy more than happy to have sex with Tamar, but doing so only for his own pleasure. And his actions are making it clear that he had no intention of producing offspring that he would have to raise and invest money in. I think today they say to raise a kid is like $1 million investment into a kid over the first 18 years or whatever. So he's like, I ain't putting any money into somebody else's kid. Uh, And so now he could have refused the obligation. It would have made him look bad. Mm -hmm. But he could have said, you know, I'm not going to do it. You know, uh, so then you mentioned Ruth. And you recall that whoever the other guy was, the closer of kin to Boaz, said, Mm -hmm. yeah, no, I I turn it down. That shoe down or whatever. What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Boaz was like... Well, then I guess I'll do it. So he could have refused the obligation. Instead, he uses Tamar, he has sex with Tamar repeatedly with no intention of raising a child um, or having a child with her. Um, And so that is not good. And so God strikes him down uh, as well. Uh, Verse 10, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God put him to death also. Um, by the way, the tense in the Hebrew is not that he did this one time, but that he, he did it repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And so clearly this guy's a dirtball. Verse 11, you can jot that down in your notes. Uh, dirtball. <laughs> Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up. Notice, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. Mm-hmm. So this could mean that he's like, that Tamar lady's crazy. I don't know what's going on, you know, or whatever. Or my son Sheila has no character, or has no character just like his older brothers. And all my kids are going to be struck down dead. You know, so he, I don't know how exactly he's looking at it. But he tells her to, you know what, wait, go stay back with your dad. Um, and when my son gets older, you know, we'll, we'll deal with all this. Um So Tamar goes back to live with her father. That doesn't seem crazy, right? Seems like, okay, you know, goes to live back. However, when the father gave, that is Tamar's father, Shua, gave her to uh, Ur to marry, he basically said, you're not, really, you're not in our family anymore. You're in this family now. And so Tamar should have went to live with Judah and his family, and they cared for her uh, until Sheila was old enough and so on and so forth. And so that's a problem right there, that Judah is shirking his responsibilities. Um, that kind of points to that. Um, and so verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. Uh, when Judah was comforted, uh, some versions say uh as Judah was seeking to be comforted. That's a big difference. So I I don't know which one is right. Most of the modern translations, even the King James has when Judah was comforted, but there is some indication that it could be worded the other way. 
Anyhow, he went up to Timna, which is a town, to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira, uh, the Adulamite. Now, remember earlier he was called Hiram. Um, so same guy we're talking about. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timna to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and she sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timna, for she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So Timna, some versions um, say Timnath, um, that is the same place in the book of Judges that Samson goes to, sees a pretty girl, and demands that his parents get her for him. Do whatever you want, but it, the town doesn't have much of a godly track record. Anyhow, he's heading up there. Um, he's going with Hiram, the Adulamite. Uh, hanging out with the Adulamites got him into some trouble earlier. You know, is this one of those? He's grieving, he's mourning. I, you know, I just need kind of a weekend away with the boys kind of thing. And so he calls up his fleshly friends, and good stuff doesn't typically happen when you do that. And so, uh, who knows, but perhaps that's it. Well, they took some precautions. What was that? Well, they had the sheep shearers. They wanted to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. Where do you get these? (laughs) Do you make these up yourself? All right, let's move on. Yeah. I'm looking at, it says, um, like you said, this, this event that they were doing, the sheep sharing, was associated um, in the ancient world with festivity and licentious behavior, mm. characteristic of pagan fertility cult practices. So that's in Timna? Yeah. That this is, yeah, okay. So they should know better than to be doing it, one would think. Maybe that's the reason they're heading up there. Could be. Yeah. What happens Just go down to it. That's Timna. right. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. So that's sad uh, yeah. to read that and hear that. So Tamar is growing older. Her father is growing older, who's been caring for her. Um, you know, she noticed that Sheila is of uh, marrying age, and yet uh, Judah's made no effort. And so it seems that she decides, well, it doesn't seem, she decides to take matters uh, into her own hand. Um, and she dresses up. Notice it says she takes off her widow's garments, and she... Uh, covers herself or veils herself, whatever. Um, that is the mark of a prostitute, the, the clothing of a prostitute uh, or whatever. So when she goes out to that town square there, that the entrance to that particular town, her clothing makes it very clear kind of who she is, what she is. You know, I think today, like... And Judah would know. That, I mean, Judah yeah, was everybody for would. a good time. So right. he, like, specifically found the prostitute. And so, also, if you look at uh, if you look at verse fifteen, it says, "When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face." Mm-hmm. So she was in the garb of a prostitute. It says, "He turned to her at the roadside and said, "Come, let me come in to you." For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, "What will you give me that you may come in to me?" And he answered, "I'll send you a young goat from the flock." And she said, "If you give me a pledge until you send it." And he said, well, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose, and she went away, and taking off her veil, she put back on the garments of her uh, widowhood. And so she mm-hmm. demands a pledge from him um, until 
he can send the negotiated payment. Um, she says, I want, <laughs> she says, I want your signet, I want your cord, and I want your staff. Each one of them are identifying markers. It would be a unique signet, a unique staff, and so on. Um, so there was not going to be any mistaking who these belong to. Um, notice verse 17, the second half, and she conceived um, by him. And so this is a messed up situation. This is Jerry Springer in the Bible again. Um, but in saying that, we know that God is in all of this even. Um, and so uh, both Matthew and Luke, uh, I'll read, this is the genealogy in Matthew. It says, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Jes- and then dot, 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 Jesse, the father of David, dot, 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 Jacob, the father of Joseph, of whom it was supposed that Jesus was born. And so both David and Jesus come specifically from this relation between Judah and this lady Tamar through their, the, she's going to have twins in this uh, encounter here and uh, the the oldest of those two is a guy by the name of Perez mm-hmm. and so this, yes it's all messed up but even in that God is using all of this to bring about the messianic line um, so as I'm thinking about Judah, he's wrong in so many ways he marries a Canaanite woman, a woman. Uh, he he doesn't take Tamar in when his son has died. He doesn't provide his youngest son to fulfill the obligation of the brother. And then he sleep, sleeps with what he perceives to be a prostitute. Now, Tamar, here's a question. Is Tamar wrong in what she does here? I think she's feeling desperate. I mean, I think it's a desperate... If we look at it from our worldview now, it's, it's different to put it for me to have an opinion about it from where I am now. You know, to look at it in context, she was doing the only thing she desperately could. So if you were desperate financially and you robbed the bank. Well, no, I wouldn't do that. Well, you, okay, so is that what you're, you're saying this is like that? I'm just, I'm just. Well, I'm just looking at the context. and Massaging says, your thoughts a little. Yeah, it just. Basically, it says that she waited. She, wa- I mean, in those days, like, what were your options? There's, you know, what would have been her option if she didn't do it? That's the way I would look at it. Like, I don't. Well, know. Well, you answer your own question. I don't know. Yes, you what, do. What What does it say that would have happened to? Her? I mean, it tells us what would have happened to her, right? Where she would have been alone. Oh, it doesn't say that. Had we... no family. Okay. Been by herself. Uh-huh. Back in that time when women were in that predicament, they died penniless and by okay. themselves. So it is an act of desperation. It doesn't make it right. Good. I'm with you. Act of it's desperation. motivated by desperation. Yep. I'm hearing you. Yeah. I don't even know if she knew the Lord. Right. She's okay. a Canaanite well, that's woman. That's what I'm thinking. Like, it's not like she can go, go like, well, what would God do? What does God uh-huh. say to do? She's just acting out of feelings. I'm wondering why she even owns a veil. Like, what kind of character does she have if she's owning? Well, you could take anything and put it over as a veil. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if it's like she's got fishnet stockings yeah, and mini know. skirts. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if it's the same type of carryover or right. yeah. or what. But uh, it's just covering the whole concept. And it's interesting because it's a covering, it's a hiding. Hmm. So. 
I think we can definitely say Jacob or Judah wrong in this. Um, let me make an argument for why Tamar is not wrong, though I wouldn't recommend any of us right. go out and do this. Um, was it wrong for her to sleep with Onan, her the second brother? Um, well, that was part of. Isn't that part of the tradition? Uh huh. Right. Okay. No. Right? We even see the law will later say that's what it's supposed to Wouldn't it have been wrong for her to sleep with Sheila, the thirdborn? No. no. Because by these two are fulfilling the obligation of the brother of her dead husband, offspring was going to be raised, she would be cared for, the family line would go on, and so on. And so you could make a case that all she's simply doing is making sure that this practice is fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And if Sheila's not going to be given to her, then Judah's going to be given to her. Yeah. And Judah gives himself to her unknowingly. Mm-hmm. And so really, that's what she's fulfilling in this whole process here. And so, I don't know, you do whatever you want with that, but it's certainly something to consider, I think. Verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat by... we got to get out of here, folks. By the friend... Uh, by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He didn't find her. He asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute? And that goes in the line with what you were talking about, Suzanne, about the practices up there. And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I couldn't find her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute had ever been there. And Judah replied, well, let her keep the things as her own or we'll be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. All right, so he has every intention to make payment. They go looking for her. They can't find her. Um, you know, there's even no like, oh, yeah, well, she's always here. She lives over there. They're like, no, nobody knows who she is, what they're talking about. Uh, and so uh, essentially Judah says, look, we tried. If we keep searching around, people are going to start laughing at us and we'll look silly. And so let's just move on. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. But she, moreover, she's pregnant by that immorality. And Judah said, bring her out, let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. So you recall in the New Testament, when the woman is caught in adultery, that the religious leaders drag her before Jesus to basically uh, get Jesus to either show that he's not a merciful God guy like everybody thinks or he doesn't follow the law uh, by not killing her. Well, what they forgot to do was bring out the man as well because the same penalty would have applied to both of them. And similarly here, you have Judah so quick to judge her immorality by saying that she should be burned at the stake for committing prostitution when he's the guy that committed prostitution himself, whether it was with her or not. He's so quick to judge somebody else. And, you know, sometimes those that are the loudest about other people's sins are the ones that are secretly involved in those sins themselves or something similar. And so he's so quick, he says, bring her out, let her be burned, swift, severe, because he's this all-righteous guy. Too bad he wasn't a little bit righteous earlier, more righteous earlier, in a variety of the ways that I mentioned that he failed. Um, Tamar, she acts wisely. She vindicates herself. Um, she basically says, uh, "Okay, if I indeed was a prostitute, then these are the guys that I was, the guy I was prostitute with, and here's his things. Bring him out here with me." 
Judah immediately recognizes that they are his um, and that the real problem is his failure to do what he was supposed to do. Yeah. That's this verse here, 26, causes me to make that argument I made earlier that what she is doing is simply what he wouldn't do, and that is raise up an offspring. Um, so Judah realizes he's at fault. Verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And, oh, this is a fun one. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself, little fella. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was called Second Place or something. No, his name was called Zira um, or Nice Try or Good Effort or something like that. Um, so she has twins. seems like there's so many twins born uh, in the New Testament I, or in the uh, book of Genesis. I suspect if you did a study, you would find there's no more twins born there than there are in our day or whatever. But they're told in a number of stories. Uh, we see here's one more case. These two, their names are going to be Perez, which means breach, and Zara, which means something else. Rising. Rising? Okay, good, thank you. Um, as you see, Zara reaches out his hand first. They tie a little string on it, but then he kind of pulls it in. Perez wrestles him back away from the opening, and he makes his way out, and he becomes the firstborn son. So that little string doesn't mean anything. It's the whole body's got to be out. That's how you qualify. It's kind of cool or whatever. You know whose hand it was that was out. It's for so fun, us. yeah. And and you know the idea of Perez being a breach is look at you, you know you tackled that guy and tried. Can you imagine the rest of their lives together? They must have been fun little kids. Um, as I said earlier, crazy chapter. God is nonetheless in it. Um, Perez is in the line of the Messiah as well as King David. Um, we read that in both Matthew and in Luke. Um, Tamar, let, let me read this to you. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and G of whom Jesus was born. So Tamar, this whole she's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's five women in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, committing prostitution. Rahab was a professional prostitute. Um, Bathsheba has an affair with David. And then there's also Ruth and Mary. And both of those two, um, nothing but good is said of them. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, this whole family line of the genealogy or the children of Israel is not totally glowing. And I, and I think a lesson for us is it's a helpful reminder that God can use any one of us um, for his purposes that doesn't mean like, and, and there are some crazy Christians that think this, like, I got to really work up a horrible testimony of all the horrible things I've done to really show how amazing God is or whatever. You know, the greatest of testimonies is, you know what, my parents came to know the Lord and they raised me in the Lord and I walked with him every day of my life or I tried to. That's yeah. the greatest testimony. Well, I don't win. Not, that's the yeah. goal. <laughs> I'm sorry? I, if there's a competition and that's the greatest, I don't win. <laughs> so. Well, that's the goal, though. That's our if objective. Just, that's what each yeah, of us wants to do. Story I got. <laughs> and so your story, I think, as well as these stories that we're seeing here, 
what it can serve to do is really magnify the grace of God mm-hmm. because we're seeing people that don't deserve, you know, you're pretty good. You deserve to be in the line of Christ or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, including, and I love this phrase, including Tamar in the genealogy is grace. Identifying with Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah, that's amazing grace. And God's about that. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, these stories, Lord, these accounts. Um, Father, we don't always understand them, but I, we do think that you you give us some insight into these things. And, Lord, we think you've done that again this evening. And, Lord, ultimately, we're just grateful for your grace in our lives. And, Lord, we might be able to compare ourselves with some of these folks and, and think, hey, you know what, I'm further along than them, and I'm not such a bad person. But the reality is our comparison is with you. And the closer we get to you, the more of our sin is revealed and uh, the more of your grace and mercy, Lord, shines through. And so, Lord, we rejoice in those truths uh, and that reality. And so, Father, flood our hearts with a sense of your goodness, I pray, as we go from here. Lord, give us wisdom as we seek to walk with you, we pray in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.